So as you may have noticed, today is a what we kind of call a special service, a special Sunday, just given the membership Sunday and the baptism uh, afterwards. And so this is a dangerous thing to say before you start preaching, but um, I'm intending to make this sermon shorter to accommodate those times. Um, so hopefully that doesn't backfire your expectations. Um, can anyone recall the Eighth Amendment of the Constitution? Anyone know what the Eighth Amendment is? No cruel and unusual punishment. And there's stuff about bails in there, no excessive bails and some other things. But no cruel and unusual punishment is typically the part we remember from that. Sorry for the civics quiz. Um, so in society, sometimes that question comes up. I know like that's a, that's const- people kind of appeal to that amendment for debates over like the means of death penalty and whether certain things are cruel and it's kind of a it's a thing in our in our culture that we we discuss you know the justice of certain punishments um, there was a book recently that came out by Rebecca McLaughlin called confronting Christianity uh, 12 what is it 12 hard questions for the world's largest religion or something like that and she's a Christian writing a defense of Christianity kind of these 12 major questions that she thinks people have today to object to Christianity. And one of them is about God's judgment. How could God, in this case, specifically a loving God, send people to hell? In other words, is God violating our Eighth Commandment, our Eighth Amendment? Is he, is he guilty of cruel and unusual punishment with his wrath? Today's passage is sort of a quintessential, what you might think of when you think of Revelation, this wrathful God pouring out his judgment. Well, God does not apologize in this passage. Um, We see that God is someone, is one who is coming, the judge of the universe, coming in wrathful vengeance. Like Romans 1, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against the ungodliness of men, against a horrendously wicked humanity, and he's not apologizing for it. He's not writing a defense chapter for his wrath. Who are you, O pot, or, or, or pot, O clay, to question your potter, your maker? This is a passage that in stark terms lays out the just and fitting and appropriate wrath of God against a horrendously wicked humanity. And so we're kind of doing a two-part series here. Uh, the, the, the main point, the main message of this passage that Holly just read for us is that God is going to pour out his wrath as a righteous vengeance. And there were there's sort of two themes that we see in this passage. We dealt with the one last week, which is that he's pouring out his righteous vengeance against those who oppress his people. God is going to rescue his people by judging their oppressors. But today, secondly, the other theme is that he will pour out that righteous vengeance on those who persist in unrepentance against him. So God will pour out his righteous vengeance on those who persist in unrepentance. And I want to very quickly give us six characteristics of humanity's sin and the judgment they will receive. So we'll give six characteristics that we see in this passage of that persistent unrepentance. The first one is this, is that they follow the beast. Sinful humanity falls a beast. You'll notice in verse 2, 
that the first angel went out and poured his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who what? How are they described? Who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. This mark is, this is a picture that we saw come up in chapter 13 where the second beast causes people to be marked with the name of the first beast. And this marking contrasts the sealing in the book of the Revelation. The, 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 the believers are sealed by God and unbelievers are marked by the beast. It's symbolic. It's not a microchip or a tattoo or something like that, right? It's a spiritual mark that indicates one's loyalty to the beast, to the, the satanic powers in this world, the state specifically in that case. It is to be loyal and to worship the beast. And so these are people who reject the true worship of God. This is, this is the people receiving this righteous, just vengeance. These are people who reject the true worship of God and go after the idolatry of the beast. And what's interesting as well is we saw last week there's this language of curse. They, these, these folks curse God. Um, that's actually the word literally that could be translated blaspheme God. Or where else have we seen this language of, of blaspheming God? We saw that the beast is one who, who blasphemes God and has blasphemes written on him. In other words, if you look at verse, look at these, I'll show you these points so you don't have to take my word for it. In verse 9, they were scorched by the heat and they cursed, that is, blasphemed the name of God. Or verse 11, and they cursed or blasphemed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. Or if you go to verse 21, and the great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed or blasphemed God for the plague. In other words, not only do they worship the beast, they, they're marked by the beast and they follow him, but they actually become like the beast. They take on the characteristics of the beast themselves. They themselves become beastly. They become like that which they worship which is a principle we see throughout the scripture, even in the Old Testament, that we become like the thing we worship. Why? Because we, we start to emulate what we admire. When we admire something, when we worship something, whether we intend to or not, we start to, because we emulate that, we tend to want to become like that thing. We tend to take on the characteristics of that thing. And so, for example, we become shallow, like the pop culture that we obsess over. Or we become materialistic as we worship the God of consumerism and wealth. Or we become un unsacrificial as we worship the God of, of ease and comfort. And so to these people, they become like the beasts they worship. Secondly, they refuse to repent. Look at verse 9 with me, where it says again that they, the, they were scorched by fierce heat and they cursed or blasphemed the name of God who had power over these plagues, they did not repent and give him glory. They did not worship him as a true God. They did not give him the glory that he is due, and they did not repent. Verse 11, so that's the fourth bowl, the fifth bowl right after it. Verse 11, they cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. They're obstinate. They, they, they refuse, even in the face of judgments that are for their wickedness, that should expose their wickedness. They refuse to admit their wickedness. And as we saw last week, as there are a lot of Exodus themes, there's a lot of these, these bowls reflect the plagues of Egypt, just like the trumpets did. So this is fitting, because remember, in the Exodus, as God is pouring out his judgments, Pharaoh's heart is hardened, and he refuses to repent. 
Thirdly, we see that their judgment is from a holy God. Their judgment proceeds from God himself. Look at chapter 15, verse 5 and falling with me. In verse 5, we see that the judgment scene begins with the opening of God's sanctuary, or literally the word here could and probably should be translated temple. This is God's presence, verse 5. After this, I looked. This is the opening of the bowls. How do we see the bowls being introduced here? I looked, and the temple of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. This is something that happens, opening scenes of a new, of a new, of a new vision in Revelation. The temple is opened and exposed. God's presence is seen. So the judgments are happening with God's presence being revealed. It's coming from God's presence. And then we see in verse 6 that the angels with the bowls are coming from this sanctuary, from this temple. It's out of the sanctuary comes the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. The angels that carry the judgment are proceeding from the very presence of God, like they're carrying the judgments from God's presence. Verse 7, the bowls are given to them from one of the four living creatures. You remember the four living creatures? We saw them first introduced in chapter 4, where they're always around the presence of God, the four living creatures representing all of creation. They're around God, worshiping him. And so verse 7, one of the four living creatures is the one who gives to the seven angels the seven bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. In other words, it's someone that's intimately associated with God, the one on the throne, who actually then gives the judgments to the angels coming from God's presence. And notice, it's not just bowls of wrath generically, but the text says, verse 7, that it's bowls of God's wrath. And this fits with chapter 16, verse 1, where we're going to see the voice of a, a, a loud voice from, uh, what does it say, from the temple. Elsewhere in the book, this is a signal for God's voice. It's God's voice that is then giving the decree in chapter 6, verse 1, to pour out the bowls. He's the one saying, go and pour out the bowls. Or in 16, verse 8, as we read, he is the one who is described as having power over the plagues. These are God's judgments. Okay, If, if you are a criminal, which I don't suggest you be a criminal, uh, we'd have an issue with that if you're a member here and you're a criminal. But if you are a criminal for the sake of this illustration, and you, say, attracted the attention of a neighborhood watch or whatever. We, they had those where I was growing up. I don't know if that's a thing anymore. Uh, they put, like, stickers on their windows and stuff. Um, but if you grab the attention of the neighborhood watch society, that might, you might be like, okay, I should probably lay low. Like, you're a little bit on edge with your criminal activity, Right? But now let's say you attract the attention of the local police district. Okay, now I better really watch out what I'm doing. Maybe don't break into as many houses now. The police are on me. Or let's up the ante. What if all of a sudden now you're into such criminal activity that the FBI are on your tail? In other words, there's an escalation of, when you get the FBI on you, now you're messing with the big dogs. Okay? When you get certain people after you that are, that are a, little bit, a little bit, you know, neighborhood watch society, okay, you know, FBI, you don't want to mess with that. Here what we have, where are the judgments coming from? This isn't the neighborhood watch society. These judgments are coming from the infinitely holy, all-powerful judge of the universe. They're coming from God himself. It's not just an interesting fact to know, like, oh, yeah, the judgments come from God. They come from God. That's terrifying. 
Look at verse 8, that, that as we see this little section close, God's holy presence, it's sort of a picture of the Shekinah glory from the Old Testament. The temple would fill with the smoke representing God's presence. It seemed to be absolutely unbearable. No one can enter the presence. It's, it's, it's this unbearable, terrifying presence in the mix, midst of human wickedness. And the sanctuary, the temple, was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. What am I on, four now? I think four. Fourth, I didn't put numbers in my notes. Their their sin will be held accountable to God's law. Their sin will be held accountable to God's law. So in, earlier in that section, verse 5, it's, it's called the, the temple of the tent, or the temple of the tabernacle, the tent of witness is what it says. And this language of the tent of witness, this is Old Testament language, the word witness specifically refers to the, the uh, Ten Commandments that were a witness of God's covenant, his covenant law, his expectations for his people, what they were to obey. It was a witness within the temple, within the tabernacle, uh, setting. And so by raising this, this subject of the tent of witness, God's law, it conjures up the idea, it communicates the idea that it's the very law that wicked humanity has broken. It's no wonder then that judgment proceeds. We see the tent of witness and we go, oh, humanity is not following that witness. Humanity is breaking God's law one after the other. No wonder then right afterwards follows the very judgment and wrath of God. Or we see in chapter 16, verse 19, later, it's going to talk about the great city Babylon, which remember this is symbolic for, uh, the, later it's going to be the harlot. It's sort of the economic uh, consumeristic system of the world. Okay, and so the great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. And notice what it says. God remembered Babylon the great. Now that's not saying that God was like, he's good at having a short-term and long-term memory, okay? That's not a comment on like intellectual capacity, right? The remembering here is a description of what he just did. I judged that city. I remember, this is, that's the way the word remember is oftentimes used in scripture, is that I'm going to act on what, it, what I know. In this case, it's therefore, I'm going to repay you for your sins. I'm going to hold you accountable. Okay? These are people who are violating the, the witness, the, the commandments of God. These are people who are going to be repaid. Their sins are going to be remembered. Their sins against God. They are judged, in other words. We're not judged by our own standard of what we think is right and if we think we're a good enough person. As long as we're not as bad as Hitler, you know? That's a really low bar. Okay? We're judged according to God's perfect standard of righteousness. Fifth, we see that they are made to drink the cup. They are made to drink the cup. So continuing in verse 19, this, uh, this, this Babylon, it says, To make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of God's wrath. And throughout the book, there's this interesting sort of irony and play on words. That word wrath there, uh, it could be translated, the, the fury of his wrath, it could be translated passion. That's what the word means. It means passion. And so you get this sort of interesting play on words where other times in the book, for, chapter 14, uh, I believe it's verse 
uh, 8 and 10, and then chapter 18, verse 3, it'll use this language of like the, the people who participate, Babylon, like drink, uh, drinking up this wine of passion, like this passionate sin, um, like this imagery of sexual immorality. But what's interesting is that the people who drink up the passion of this sinful cup, they get drunk in their passionate sin. God is going to make them drink a cup of a different passion, the passion of his wrath. You want to drink the cup of the passion of sin, God is going to give you a cup to drink, and it's going to be the cup of the passion of his wrath. This fits with the Old Testament imagery of this cup representing God's judgment. What Jesus himself says, let this, pass, this cup pass from me, the cup of God's judgment. The prophets speak about a cup that, that Israel is going to be made to drink. They're going to, be like, they're going to be made to drink this wine as if they're going to become drunk, staggering by the very judgment of God. And so sinful humanity, God's judgment is depicted as this causing them to drink the cup that was their drinking of the passionate sin is now the passion of his very wrath. And this fits what we see in the book where wine press is this image of God, of Christ specifically stamping in the wine press and a picture of God's judgment over humanity. The wine press of, of the wine here. And then sixthly here, we see humanity described as deceived into warring against God. We get this picture of a battle. Um, and so look at me with verse 12 through 16, starting in verse 12. We see these kings from the east being gathered. So the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Now, this was very similar language to the trumpet, the sixth trumpet, where we have uh, these angels who are unleashed from the Euphrates and an army comes, and so we have a similar thing happening here. There's actually a, a battle scene that kind of closes off most of the sections in Revelation. So there's this, the, uh, this idea of a battle is used throughout the book, ending the trumpets, ending the bulls. There's a battle that seems to be alluded to in 17, uh, at the end of 19, at the end of 20, the millennium there. And so there's always this kind of like, this again, this parallelism throughout the book of the battle being this really... Uh, a powerful way of depicting humanity's final rebellion and destruction. And so here again, we get these kings from the east, like in the trumpet judgments. And the east during that time, if you were within the Roman Empire, the original setting of Revelation, the east was kind of the, that, the Euphrates was like the border of the empire, and the east was that uh, scary place of those other nations, the other empires that, you know, you're afraid they, they may come and attack you. And occasionally, these Parthians from the east had attacked Rome. And so you might think of it almost like if you were growing up uh, before I was alive, like in the 80s and things like that during the Cold War era, okay? There was, from what I understand, there was a lot of tensions, you know? Um, like the Cuban Missile Crisis and stuff like that. There was tensions of like, are they gonna, are they gonna nuke us or what's gonna happen here? And that's a similar way to how they felt about from the East. And so this raises fears of invasion, these kings gathering from the east, and the river Euphrates is dried up, like creating a pathway for them to come right in. The other thing is that it's, it's sort of like a symbolic parody of the Exodus. As we have Exodus themes going on here, remember in the Exodus, God parts the sea to make way for God's people to go through the Red Sea, and then eventually he repeats that same pattern as they cross the Jordan, and he parts the Jordan, causes the Jordan to stop flowing. So here we have the, these, these evil forces coming through the Euphrates that is dried up like a parody of the Exodus. 
We see then this army gathered in verse 13 and following. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. And so we see here, these are, again, it's like the anti-trinity, these three forces of darkness, the dragon and his two minions. Out of their mouths, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world. So now it's the whole world, the kings from all over, to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Skip down to verse 16. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. So again, we get this great end time destruction and, and rebellion of humanity cast in the form of a final great battle as throughout the book. We get the dragon, the beast, and the prophet who are, are false prophet who are assembling these armies, causing deception as we'll see because the frog was an was a unclean animal in the Old Testament. Um, and so it, it conveys this idea of an unclean spirit. Unclean spirit is language like in the Gospels when there are unclean spirits. That's another name for a demon. These are demonic spirits um, at, at, the, at Satan, at the dragon's disposal to deceive people. As we see, it, the frog is coming from the mouth. Elsewhere in the book of Revelation, when things come from someone's mouth, it indicates speech, like Jesus, a sword coming from his mouth. It's judgment that he speaks. And so the frog coming from their mouth is, is deception, the demonic deception through, de de through deceit, through false ideology, through false teaching. These are false spirits like in 1 John. And Armageddon here is, it literally means hill of Megiddo. Um, and that was a place where there was a lot of battles. Megiddo was a place where there's a lot of battles in Israel, Israel's history. So it kind of conjures up a place of battle. Um, there's not a literal hill of Megiddo. Uh, that's part of the confusion here. But the idea of a hill was also associated with a place of battle. So we get all this sort of battle imagery. The idea here is that humanity is being deceived by satanic, demonic influences to, to bring about a rebellion exemplified in the form of a battle. And so in all of these six characteristics, again, we see God will pour out his righteous vengeance on those who persist in unrepentance. On account of this sort of sin. And so the judgment of God is fitting. The, 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 the God's wrath is... It is, it is not a cruel and unusual punishment, but the punishment fits the crime. It is said in chapter 16, verses 5 through 7, just, holy, it's what they deserve, true and just are your judgments. And it's against such things that we are meant to see that God's wrath will be fully poured out. Chapter 15, verse 1, where these seven plagues were introduced, then I saw a sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. God's wrath will be exhausted on account of these sins. But we skipped over verse 15. Chapter 16, verse 15. I'm not skipping it. I'm just pausing. We'll go back to it. Let's go back to it now. So, it's interesting, it's kind of this odd sort of, the ESV even puts it in parentheses, like it doesn't totally fit, like it kind of breaks the, the train of thought. 
And so like earlier, verses 5 through 7, where we got poetry, we got kind of poetry that was plopped into the middle of the section, that draws our attention. We go, well, that's a little bit different. There's a different type of writing going on here. And so our attention is drawn to that, and we see that as, as, as an emphasis. It's unveiling an emphasis in the passage. And so likewise, verse 15, just kind of being plopped in here, I don't think it's accidental. I don't think John was just like, like writing, 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 got distracted, went over here and came back. It's purposeful. It's inserted there in an awkward way to grab our attention. And so let's read verse 15 in the midst of this battle scene. Behold, this is Christ speaking here. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. So he uses this language that we have elsewhere in the New Testament in the Gospels or uh, I believe in 2 Peter, 1 Thessalonians 5, I believe, where Jesus, his coming is described as a thief coming in the night. Now, what is that supposed to mean? Obviously, it doesn't mean Jesus has criminal characteristics. The point is, when a thief comes, if someone's going to break into my house, they're not going to like send me a text message the day before saying, hey, just so you know, at 3 a.m., you might hear a window break. I'm going to be coming. You, know, they, you don't announce your coming if you're a thief. You, you come with a, a level of unexpectedness. Um, the, it was, I think it was two weeks ago, uh, the Cheneys, I was just making sure you guys are here, the Cheneys, we were having a, a meeting with some people, and I like got the details of this meeting wrong. And so I assumed we were like, going to go hang out at their place, and so I, I pull over at, by their house on 17th Street there, and if you know anything about the Cheneys, they have an open door policy, and uh, I've, I always knock because I'm a knocker, um, but I think Andrew has reprimanded me enough times to say, don't knock, just come on in, just come on in. So I'm like, you know what, I'm not going to knock this time. I, I just open the door and I walk in. And I see Natalie sitting there FaceTiming someone and the kids are playing on the floor. And I'm thinking, this is odd. Like, this is, it's like she's not expecting me to be here. And all of a sudden, Natalie turns around and, ah! <laughs> I got the details wrong. So I said, you know what, I, I think I'm confused. I'm going to leave now. <laughs> so either Jesus coming like a thief in the night or your pastor randomly showing up in your living room when you're not expecting it. The point being, it's, it's unexpected. It's unexpected at least to some. And this idea of nakedness here, it's you're not fully clothed. You're, 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 it's nighttime. You're not, you don't have all of your regular clothes on. And the idea of nakedness would have been this, would have conveyed this idea of shame in that culture and ours. So the point here then is the need to be watchful. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake. We need to be watchful, church. Especially, notice the context, in view of this battle where there's deception going on. There are frogs coming out of the dragon's mouth. Deceiving people, gathering the armies to rebel against God. That's the picture of, of humanity. This deceived humanity rebelling against God. And Jesus is plopping in in verse 15 and saying, I come like a thief. You're, you're blessed to stay awake. Be vigilant. Live with your eyes open. Refuse to join into the deception and the wickedness which would thereby make you fall prey to the same fate as them. If you're not careful, if you're not staying awake, you're going to be unprepared just like them. You're going to go along with it. You're going to be deceived just like the rest of the world. 
And what happens then is the one who doesn't persevere, the one who proves not to have been a believer, goes along with the world, they're going to experience the same fate. Christ will come like a thief to them. And so the call of this passage, the point then of this sort of second emphasis, is a call for us to persevere. As we see the judgment of God, what, what, it was, what is our response to that as believers? I think it's found primarily in verse 15. Stay awake, church. Live with your eyes open. You think about the, the early messages to the seven churches. They were called to conquer. Conquer is this idea of, of this patient endurance. In midst of the different temptations and trials that they were facing, they needed to conquer through that. They needed to persevere through those things, whether that was the, the temptation of wealth, whether that was a temptation of persecution, whether that was a temptation of false teaching, whatever it means, they needed to keep their eyes open, be vigilant, and persevere in view of the end goal, in view of the end judgment. Because either we will conquer and we will receive the reward. We will receive the crown of righteousness, the other different promises we saw in those, in those letters to the churches, or the other fate for those marked by the beast is to experience the full wrath of God, to drink the cup of the fury of his wrath. And praise God, church, as those here, as those who believe in Christ, we believe in a Christ who accomplished the gospel for us. We believe, we believe in a Christ, as we confess in the Apostles' Creed on Sundays, that died for our sins. He was buried. He, he rose again. We believe that on the cross, that Jesus bore that wrath for us. The very wrath depicted here in all of its terrifyingness. Jesus bore that on the cross for those who trust in him. And as we get ready to celebrate uh, the act of baptism later, Peter uses this imagery of, of understanding baptism in terms of God's judgment as well. In 1 Peter 3, he talks about how baptism is, is sort of the, it's parallel to the, to, the, to the flood narrative in Genesis, Noah's flood. If you think about Noah's flood, God is judging humanity with these flood waters, and he's, he's accomplishing a salvation through judgment, just as we see here. He's saving Noah and his family through the judgment of sinful humanity. The waters are a judgment. And Peter says that baptism now corresponds to those judgment waters. Baptism is like a picture of those judgment waters. Think about that. That as someone is buried underwater, that's a picture of them dying with Christ, right? And when they come up, they're raised with Christ. That's what, we're, that's what we're picturing here. We're saying this person who's a believer, they've died with Christ and they've raised with Christ. So now we're going we're gonna to symbolize that in the act of baptism. When they're down in the water, though, that's a picture of judgment. You've died with Christ. Death, the wages of sin, is death. Down in the water, death, that's what Jesus bore for us, is the punishment for sin. He died for us, paying the punishment, which is death itself. The point of baptism is that we've come through the judgment because we're in Jesus. We pass through the judgment waters of baptism because we're in Jesus so that now we raise to life with him as he was risen for us for our justification. And as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we, this is what we celebrate in the Supper every week as well. That the reason that we can partake of the cup of salvation Christ's cup of salvation for us, his blood, 
depicted, his blood given over for us, and death depicted in the cup and his body broken for us, depicted in the bread. The reason we can celebrate and partake of that cup of salvation is only because he himself drank the cup of God's wrath for us. And so as we prepare to take of the Lord's Supper, um, we do believe that this is specifically a, a rite, an ordinance that is for the believer. And so if you're here today and you're not a believer, we are so glad to have you with us this morning. Um, we would just ask that you would refrain from partaking of the Lord's Supper. As Again, we, we see this as a rite that is specifically for those who uh, have publicly made that decision to follow Christ. And we would also say that if you are living out of step with the gospel currently, if, you're a, a, if you would consider yourself a believer, but you're not living in step with what the Lord's Supper itself proclaims, if you're living in unrepentant sin, we would also ask that you would refrain. But if you are a believer who you're not perfect, the Lord's Supper itself assumes that we're not perfect. It assumes that we're sinful. That's not the point. But if you're a believer who is continuing to place your trust in Christ and living in a denial, continue attempts to deny your sin, we invite you to come forward and receive the picture of God's promise to us. That Christ drank the cup of wrath so that we could have the cup of salvation. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. In church, as often as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.